There are several places in scripture where we see this command to sing a new song. What that's referring to is almost certainly not just that we need to have a new song because we need a new one in our repertoire, but it's referring to the fact that God has done a new act of salvation and therefore the response should be a new act of praise, that God's salvation demands a certain kind of worship. And so in this psalm, we have a, a psalm that follows up so nicely off of Psalm 32, which is this that very famous psalm about our sins being forgiven and covered, um, this beautiful picture of God's forgiveness. We have a psalm that clearly leads in right right from Psalm 32. In fact, something the psalms are connected, but um, it leads in perfectly into this declaration of praise and praising God for his word, which is creative and powerful and for his eye, which sees everything for his justice and for his salvation. So we're going to, we're going to just examine this passage. There's a lot of just amazing things here that I hope will elevate your praise of God and help you to see his salvation and his works in a new light. Let's start with verse one. Well, the first section here is a call to praise the Lord. So verses one through three is a call to praise the Lord. Verse one, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of 10 strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So like I said, this follows perfectly on Psalm 32, which ended, if you remember, with this statement, it says in the, uh, Psalm 32, verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So that word righteous and the word upright are the same words that are used here in Psalm 33, 1. So really, he's starting this song, picking up from the last song and, and rejoicing in the fact that God is worthy to be praised. So there's a connection here that what we heard about in Psalm 32 has to result in praise. And so we've, we've seen this a lot, but the Psalms are constantly uh, calling us to respond to God's salvation, to his character, to his works in a way that is befitting to who he is. And so we see all these commands, right? Shout for joy, give thanks in verse two, use these instruments to worship him. And of course, sing, sing to him a new song. So all of these things are the response that we should have because of what God has done. And we have to just constantly see this in the Psalms that God's salvation, God's gifts to us demand thanks and they demand praise. We should constantly be praising God. And I hope that when you start your day and when you end your day, you're spending it, yes, in prayer, but maybe turning on a song, a song that glorifies God, to sing praise to him, to set your heart um, in this tune of godliness and of thankfulness and of praise. We need to be people that are constantly giving God praise. Now, the instruments he mentions here, the, the lyre and the harp of 10 strings, these are common instruments um, in that day. And so he's saying, take out these instruments and use them to bring excellent praise to your God. Now, again, notice he says a new song. So what I said here at the beginning was that this is idea of a, a new act of redemption from God that demands a new type of praise, that we have to praise him in a new and creative way. We see this in Revelation as well at the end of the Bible. There are two different times, Revelation 5 and Revelation 14, where there's this, this mention of a new song that is being sung. In Revelation 5, 9, it's when the, the lamb who was slain takes the scroll and opens it. 
right? No one else is worthy to open the scroll, but the lamb is. And so he deserves a new song. And so they sing to him praise because of who he is, the fact that he is worthy. He is worthy to take the scroll and to see these secrets that are hidden within it. So we see in the first three verses, this call to praise. And then in verses four to 12, there's praise to the Lord for his word. So it's first, it's just praise the Lord. And here it's praise the Lord for his word. Now we see a few different reasons in the rest of the psalm as to why we should praise God. Um, so this is the specific thing we should praise him for, which is his word. Look at verse four. It says, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. You know, when I hear those words, faithfulness and steadfast love, it reminds me of God revealing his name in Exodus 33, where he says that he is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. So then the name of God is, is echoed here, that this is who God is, that his word is upright, that he loves righteousness and justice. And I love this because these things, again, they're part of who God is. They define him, that he has a heartfelt love for justice and righteousness. I'm sure we've all seen instances in our world today where there's been um, maybe law enforcement or the criminal system or criminal justice system that has ruled incorrectly or done something that is unjust or maybe a a person in authority whose uh, oath has been sworn to protect the Constitution but doesn't obey the Constitution and actually undermines it. I know it's, it's crazy to think about. That can never happen today. But just imagine that that happened, right? Well, God is not like that. He not only does justice and righteousness, he does everything that is right, but he loves it. He doesn't do it hypocritically or in an empty and vain way. He does it because that's who he is. And so we can be sure that what comes from God will always be righteous and just. He's very predictable in that, in the good sense of the word, that he will always do what is right. And he, he's going to talk about God's creation through his word. So he's going to go on to talk about this word and how God creates through it. So seeing that um, God's word and his character are upright and faithful and just, it shows us what kind of wor- world God's going to create by the power of his word. It's going to be one that's full of his character, shaped by the order and the righteousness that comes from him. And notice the mention of the the earth being full of the steadfast love of the Lord. What he's saying there is that everywhere we look, we see God's love displayed. Everything in this creation is shaped by that covenant love of God, that he's displaying who he is to us through his creation. Verse six says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap He puts the deep in storehouses. So here the psalmist begins to reflect on Genesis chapter one, on the creation account, and he's marveling that God created by his word. And we should too. You know, I was was just reading Genesis one to my kids the other day, and I asked my youngest son, you know, I said, how did God create? Did he create by using a hammer? And of course he answered yes, but he was supposed to answer no. It was supposed to be an easy question. <laughs> no, he didn't use a tool. No, he didn't, he didn't have to get some materials first for his creation. He simply uses his word. That's an incredible thing. That's a beautiful thing that God has that kind of power that's inherent to who he is. It's not something external or added on. 
It's simply who he is and what he has within himself, that everything we see came from the word of God. How magnificent is that? And really what he's referring to here is a clear echo of Genesis 1, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. If you remember the, the first few verses of the Bible, we see the spirit of the God hovering over the waters, and then God speaks. He says, let there be light. That's what God says. And those two things are what's in view here. So he says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So God is speaking, and that's clearly referring to let there be light and the other commands God gives. And then it says, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Well, that word breath is the word, same word in Hebrew for spirit. So the spirit is being mentioned here. Now, again, I think breath of his mouth is a good translation. It's focusing on his word, but it would, to the reader in Hebrew, it would remind them of those first verses of the Bible. So as the psalmist is thinking about that, he's amazed at God's power to create by his word. It's an incredible thing that we should always marvel at, that everything we see comes from the mind and from the mouth of God, that he created all of it. Verse eight, he says, let, let, the, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe before him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So, be, so our response to this, to this creative word of God, should be fear and awe. And these two words are, are paralleled in these two phrases. We should be in fear and in awe of God. Awe here means having a dread of God, being in dread of God. So, you know, we could talk a lot about this, what this fear is, and we, we've discussed this in more detail in other videos, but of course there's a sense in which we aren't scared to come to God because we have free access by the blood of Jesus, right? That we're not condemned. So we're not living in this constant dread that God's going to condemn us for our sins. And we do see in, you know, perfect love casts out fear. But that doesn't mean that we don't also fear God, that we don't also, when we come before him, tremble, tremble because he is so much more powerful and so much greater than us. You know, one of the metaphors that John Piper uses that I've always found really helpful is the idea of being in the cleft of a mountain, right? Being in this mountain cave as a storm is passing by. And knowing that because you're in the mountain, you're in this rock-solid, secure place that you're not going to be in trouble. But as you look out of the mountain cave, you see the rain and the lightning and you feel the, the thunder shaking the ground underneath your feet and you understand that this storm is terrifying. It is fearful. And so in the same way, even though we're safe from the wrath of God and we rejoice in that, we still, when we come before God, we're encountering someone of infinite power. And that should shake us to our core. We do, so in other words, we don't come before God casually. I think we can do this way too often in our culture that we come before God and we just call him like our homeboy or whatever. No one says that anymore, right? But that was the thing when I was a kid. It was this, oh, this really casual, Jesus is my buddy. He's, he's my dad, my daddy, whatever. Let's be careful about that, right? No, we should, we should really have a sense of the incredible power of God and we should have awe toward him and we should not come to him in a flippant or casual way. So this fear and awe are the response because of the creative power of God's word. And then next we praise the Lord because he plans. 
So praise the Lord because of his word, right? But also praise the Lord because he plans. And more than that, his plan is established, right? What he says, what he plans will always happen. Verse 10 says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. That word plans there in verse 10 is the same word as the plot in Psalm 2, 1. You remember Psalm 2? If you, if you didn't listen to the video on Psalm Psalms 1 and 2, you definitely want to go back and listen to those because they're so foundational for this entire book. We saw that the, the first two um, Psalms in the Psalter are an introduction. They set up for everything else. But in that passage, he says, Psalm 2, 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And then goes on to speak about how the rulers of the earth plot against God and against his Messiah or his anointed. And so this, the planning and plotting in Psalm 2 is trying to undermine the plan of God, trying to stop what God is trying to do and to, to do something else instead, to put in place our own plan. And so here he reminds us that any, pl- any plans or any counsel that is trying to destroy what God has done will not be fruitful. It can't possibly be fruitful. And so God is always undermining these evil plans of the nations, of those who are opposed to him, who are trying to determine the path of their own lives, those things will come to nothing. Instead, it's what God plans that will come to fruition. Look at verse 11 and 12. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So he's taking the same words in verse 11 from verse 10, right? Counsel and plans. But here he's making the opposite point as verse 10. He's saying in verse 10, it's that the plans of the nations will come to nothing. And in verse 11, it's that the plans and counsel of God will be established forever. So what God thinks, what he says, what he has planned, it will be established. There's no way to stop the plan of God. And you know, just think about this. What a, what a powerful reason this is to live for God, that God's plans will be established. That means whatever we try to do that's against God will be fruitless. It will lead only to misery and to death. Nothing that we want to do that, to find ultimate happiness apart from God will ever work. But if you live in line with God's will, if you do what he commands you to do, if you follow his plan, then you'll see your efforts bear fruit for eternity. God's plans will be established. Even if you feel like as a, a follower of Jesus that your everything you want to do for his kingdom is frustrated and fruitless right now, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's what this reminds us of. So why fight against God? Instead, bow the knee to him, trust him, and live for him and, and enjoy a fruitful life. Verse 12 reminds us of the nation of Israel, right? When he says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, what he's saying, he's speaking, referring to Israel. Um, that's specifically what he's talking about. So God has blessed them, and so they should follow him because they're his chosen people. Then the next few verses, verses 13 and 19, are show us that we should praise the Lord because he sees and he saves. So in this section, there's a focus on the eye of God. Again, these are metaphors here, um, but look at verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all, the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. So what it's showing to us pretty clearly in this language is that God 
knows everything and he sees everything. Notice the repetition of, of looking and seeing and observing. God is aware of every single thing that is happening on the earth. Nothing is outside of his knowledge. And again, this is another great motivation for us to obey him. That God sees what we're doing. He, he sees the good and the bad. And this is more than just him knowing it. That would be enough, really, to be ashamed of evil things that we do and to, to honor him in good things that we, do, we can do. But this also means that when he sees things, nothing will be left undealt with. So the evil things we do, nothing will go unpunished. And the good things we do, nothing will go unrewarded. God always sees. He always sees. And he blesses or he curses based upon our obedience. And of course, you know, in case you're confused about that, of course, God has put the punishment for our sins. If we trust in Jesus, he's put that punishment for our sins on Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. I'm not saying that you'll be punished for your sins, but every sin will be punished either in Jesus or as a weight that you bear in eternity. So this is incredible motivation and encouragement to, to live a godly life. Verse 16 says, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue. So there's maybe two options of what he's saying here. One he could be referring to, it's pretty clear what he's saying, that these things that we trust in can't save us. So it's, it's, it might be that he's saying in light of God's judgment that these things can't deliver us from God's judgment, or he's speaking more generally and saying that these are the, not the things that saves us, that it's God, he's the one who saves. So, so I think you know, both could be in view. But I, I think what I take away from this is that we tend to think that our human means are what's going to save us when we're in a time of danger. We tend to look at whatever's in front of us, whatever has the most power in an earthly sense, and think that that's the answer instead of realizing that God is the one who has the true power to save. That God's the only one who has the power to save. You know, God often uses different means to save us, right? So when it comes to battle, very often, in the life of Israel, the, the army would be what's saved or the individual, his strength would be what delivers him, right? God uses these means in our lives, but that's not, that's, it's not that that thing saves us. It's that God is saving us through those means. <clears throat> you know, when we started um, Gospel Community Church, I, I was in a spot at the beginning where it was unclear if I would have any way to make an income. It was, it was very scary. I didn't know if I had to get, get another job or something. And my dad gave me some great wisdom. And he encouraged me. He said, remember, it's, it was never your boss who was paying your salary. It was always God who was paying your salary. The means by which he gave you that salary was through your boss. But don't think that because you don't have that source of income that God can't provide. And I think that's incredible wisdom. And I saw, I could tell you the story, I won't tell it to you now, but that God never had us miss a, a, a paycheck, that we never you know, were, were late on a payment for something, that God gave us every single thing that we needed and way more. But the reminder was, yeah, God uses different means, but don't forget who's actually giving them to you. Your paycheck is not your salvation, right? You're, that's not your hope or your house or all those things. They're all just things that God has given to you 
has the means to provide for you in this current time. So see through them, see to the God who is the one who actually gives us what we need. He's the one who, who always will rescue us. And he goes on to, to say more about this in verse 18. He says, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. So the fear of the Lord is mentioned here again, just like it was in verse eight, where we were told we should fear the Lord and be in awe of him. Here we see that God is watching over those who fear him. So God protects and provides for those who fear him. Those who hope in his steadfast love will always have what they need, ultimately speaking. And I love this. He says, God will deliver their soul from death. So God will protect them against ultimate harm and he will keep them alive in famine. So he will provide for their needs in the present. I love this. This is, a, this is incredible. So God will protect against the enemies and those that seek to harm us and he'll provide for us even when nature itself seems to be against us. God always gives his people what they need. And then we see the conclusion in verses 20 to 22, the conclusion of this passage. It says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart is glad in him because, because we trust his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. I love the the verbs in each of those verses. Waits, trust, hope. That's the response that we should have, right? As we've been praising God, we've been seeing who he is, the natural response of a life lived in praise is that we will put our trust and put our hope in God himself. That's the response that we should have, that we should remember to fix our eyes on him constantly. So are there things that you've been trusting in your life apart from God, that you've truly been thinking that this is what is going to save you, this is what is going to satisfy you or make you happy? If you have, that thing is an idol. It's something that's less than God that you're treating with God-like power. No, nothing else in our lives can save except for God. Remember the truth here in Psalm 33. Remember that truth and stand on that truth. Remember God's word is powerful. God's plan will stand. God sees everything and God saves those who trust in him. 